0: Second Timothy chapter 2 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth uh, probably I don't know what do you would say probably once or twice two to three times a year I take a break from uh, kind of our preaching whatever preaching series we're in and, and to talk about our Bible and and so this is not this morning is going to be one of those times back to this morning and, and next Sunday we're going to talk about our Bible you remember we've done we've done things on translations what's the difference between the translations how different philosophies of translations we've done textual criticism we've done manuscript evidence from time to time I I think it's important that we, we, we take a step aside and learn and understand uh, better God's Word. And so we're going to do that. Uh, and, and some of what, uh, well, maybe much of what we cover today, you already know. Um, but that's okay because it's a good reminder. Uh, I, I was. Uh, this was probably a year ago or so. I can't remember when it was when we had that spring storm and just destroyed our trees. Uh, and we had this, this this tree on the side of our house that was just in really bad shape, and so I I, I went and I used to have a chainsaw, um, but um, that probably wasn't a very good idea. Um, and and the chain came off. I, I I still don't understand what happened there. So I thought I'd go a little safer, and I bought a. Uh, uh, skill saw. Or saw-saw. Yeah. And it came with instructions. In fact, uh, just about anything you buy comes with a an instruction manual. Uh, Tom, you were telling me, what was the, the... About the lawnmower? Something about a lawnmower? The instructions said not to be used for trimming hedges. <laughs> was that something... Well, I worked on the case where someone sued oh, craftsmen. Oh, oh, that's what it was. No, someone sued craftsmen because they were using their lawnmower to trim their hedges and they got injured. Oh they didn't have a warning sticker on it. They do now. <laughs> no, of course not. I had. Yeah, it's like drinking Lysol. Yeah. Uh, real, when I was in when I was in the insurance industry, we had one where a uh, a gentleman he was from overseas. Uh, he came and he rented. You know, you can rent those RVs. Well, he rolled one, and it came to find out that he put it on cruise. He thought cruise control was autopilot. So he sat on cruise control and walked to the back of, of the of the RV. 20 years ago. <laughs> What, what prompted you to say that, my dear? They are talking about self-driving cars. Okay, all right, all right whatever. My point is... Okay, I, I could tell you about a conversation we had this, this week about how there's no correspondence between how big you are as a baby and how large you become as an adult. So... Her, an example she used was myself That I was a, <laughs> I was a very small baby But now look at me um, Anyway Owner's manual and the Instruction Then they tell you how to use it um, They tell you how to assemble it Operating instructions Power indicator light Trigger on and off switch Very important to know the on and off switch uh, Variable speed dial Foot plate adjustment um, Sawing Sawing tips Tips on how to saw. Um, pocket and plunge cuts. Uh, maintenance. Cleaning. Yeah, that'll never happen. Tr- trouble, Troubleshoot. So, they give you this whole thing, not just in English, but in Spanish and in French. Uh, uh, pig Latin? I don't know. So, and yet we come to the most important manual that... A, a person can own, and, and it seems as though we we don't really follow any kind of operating instructions. We really don't know how to approach it. We really, many, many people don't even know how to use it. And, and it's not really their fault. It's because we we've, we've not included an instruction manual. We've not helped people understand how to Use their Bible and how to, how to understand their Bible. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.15, let me just give you a quick quiz. Does 2 Timothy 2.15 encourage us to handle the word of truth? Be careful to answer the question as I've asked. Does it in, encourage us to study the Bible? Be careful. Yeah, everyone's afraid to answer. I know. No, it doesn't. What does it tell us we need to do? Study it correctly. To correctly handle the truth. It's, it's, it's in my Bible. I don't know. Is it in yours? Study to show yourself approved. Uh, so there are different translations who, do, who accurately handles or correctly handles the word of truth. Correctly, yeah. So, for years we've been telling people you need to study your Bibles, and that's true to a certain extent. But what we really need to say is you need to study your Bibles correctly. So, what we want to talk about this Sunday and next Sunday is how do we correctly handle God's Word? Now, Second Timothy. Second Timothy is, is a letter. Most uh, most believe was probably Paul's last letter. And, and so let's establish the context. Timothy didn't write the letter. Timothy was a recipient of the letter. If you'd read through Second, if you read through the, the the book of Second Timothy, you'll see that in essence, this is kind of Paul's handing off the baton. If you think of a relay race, Paul's handing his handing off the baton to Timothy. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So he's saying, those things that I have taught you, and, and, and certainly would include verse 15, I want you to train other men so that they may be qualified to teach others also. So he's not just handing the baton off to Timothy, but in fact he's saying, Timothy, I want you to hand the baton off to others. So this is Paul's letter. He's, he's writing to Timothy, a, an individual, and he's giving him instructions about what he needs to do when he's gone. Because in fact, in chapter 4, we read that Paul had every indication that he was not going to live much longer. And most believe, in fact, he did not. So this is this is... An important book because those things that were on uh, Paul's heart are the things that he now shares with Timothy. And in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. And then he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, in the immediate context, this is obviously for Timothy. And this is for Timothy um, as a preacher, as a teacher. But the application certainly would apply to all of us. To anyone who handles God's word, these principles would certainly apply. Well, first of all, what does it mean, not just to correctly, what does it mean or what does it look like to incorrectly handle The word of truth. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Incorrect handling of the word of truth. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. He's talking about the ministry of the new covenant. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways... We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. The first way we incorrectly handle the word of God is through distortion. What, is dis- what would distortion be? We don't, we don't distort the word of God. How would, you, uh, how would you take distortion? Words out of scripture out of context. Okay, scripture's out of context. What, what would it mean to distort the word of God? Yeah, you're just a little off. Or Dan? I was going to say dispute towards one's own motives. Okay, that, that now, so we have distortion, we have deception. Now there's kind of, there's kind of an overlap. But yeah, the, the, to dis, the, there, in both of these, both distortion and deception, we have intent. I think in distortion, there's less the intention than there is in deception. But it is It it is to kind of guide away from what the real meaning of the text is. To blur the real meaning of the text. Now, deception, he says, we do not use distortion, we do not use deception. I think deception is more intentional. I think that there are times when I have taught God's Word, or you have read and interpreted God's Word, and we have distorted it. But it wasn't intentional. It doesn't make it okay, it doesn't mean it's alright, it just means that there, there was no malice aforethought, I guess you could say. Deception is something different. Even though there may be some people who are themselves deceived, for the most part, deception, there's more of an intent there. It is, it is to handle God's word in a way that in most cases, for your own benefit. So, preachers deceive for their own, usually their own monetary benefit but sometimes there's intentional deception um, for personal agra- I can't, aggrandizement I probably shouldn't I probably shouldn't use words like that honestly. but but to, to to build up yourself sometimes god's word is used and it's distorted sometimes it's handled and it's used to mislead and to falsely persuade somebody but Second Timothy, go back to Second Timothy chapter four, verse two. There's another one that I think is probably, in, in evangelical circles, probably the biggest one. Second Timothy four, verse, the, the end of verse one. I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is what I would call pandering. When we use the Word of God to pander to people's interests, to pander to what they want to hear. Uh, and and um, I fear that, that far too often, that's exactly what's going on. Is is in, in our churches we we um, we pander to people's tastes, we pander to people's inclinations. Um, and and I think that he's telling Timothy, um, we do not want to distort the word of God. We do not want to obviously we not we use the word of God to to deceive, uh, and and we ought not to pander. But what about? All of us. What about the average Christian? How do we correctly handle the word of truth? Uh, The first thing he says in in verse 15 is, Do your best. Some of our other translations, what do some of our other translations say? Be diligent. Strive. Anything else? Do your best. Work hard. Be vigilant. Be vigilant. Be eager. That um, we see these. That we see this verb used all throughout the New Testament. Do your best. Be diligent. And he says to be diligent to do what? Do your best to what? Present yourself to God as one approved. That's what we to be. That's what our goal is. Our goal is to be diligent to so handle God's word that we. Present ourselves to to God as approved to God. Now, some have suggested this is eschatological, and what I mean by that, or what they mean by that, is that the is that when Jesus comes again, you know, we're going to have to stand and, and answer to Him how we handled the Word of God. And I, I don't I don't quite understand how that's supposed to go down, because the Bible says that absent from the body, present with the Lord. So is it right before I get right before I get into heaven, I'm going to have to answer how I. I think this is right now. I think he's saying that right now we want to make sure that before God we are accurately handling the word of truth. That we are approved to Him right now. What does that mean? That we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed in the sense that we're not handling it accurately. So so I think clearly he says do your best to present yourself to God right now as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. And how are we not to be ashamed? Or how is it that we cannot stand ashamed before him? Is by correctly handling the word of truth. And in, in handling the word of truth is a participle. Remember what a participle does. It modifies the main verb. By means of. So the way, the means by which we are not ashamed and we present ourselves approved to him is by correctly handling the word of truth. By means of correctly handling the word of truth. So how do we do that? Number one, recognize your own theological biases. We all have them the person who says they don't have them probably has the most we all approach the bible through our through particular theological biases that have that have grown up over the years so maybe it was a sermon we heard one time by a great preacher man it just stuck every time we read a text we think of that sermon and what he said and we automatically interpret it through that grid maybe it was the home you grew up in Maybe it was the, the church you grew up in. Maybe it was, it was just the traditions that, that you, uh, that you were, were used to. We need to understand that we all have theological biases. We all do. No one approaches the Bible from a purely neutral standpoint. And by the way, we're going to talk about commentaries here in, in, in a bit. You need to understand that whenever you read a commentary, that, comment, that commentator has a theological bias. They're kind of like scientists. We always like to think scientists approach their, their, their craft with a, with, a, with a lab coat, you know, and, and they're absolutely completely biased in, 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 in how they interpret the evidence. No, we all come with biases. And the first step to accurately handling the word of truth is to recognize and admit that we all have, you have, a particular theological bias. That bias may be right, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it may be right, but it may be wrong. But as best we can, we need to understand that we all approach the Word of God with a a certain theological bias. And we have to recognize that first of all. Number two, we have to identify the genre of literature. And this is where my undergraduate degree comes in handy. It was not... I didn't. I was gonna say I didn't waste all that money. I didn't. I didn't. Actually, I didn't have to pay for my degree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what? Yeah, that's all I got for. Yeah. Thanks, Neil. Blood, sweat, and tears. Um, by the way, first teamers were the blood. Second teamers were sweat. Third teamers were tears. Um, what's a genre? What do you mean? You mean by genre? Type. Type. It's a type. It's a kind of. It's. And the Bible is rich. It is, it is a rich work of literature. And it has all different kinds of genres of literature in it. It's unlike um, the, uh, the Quran. If you've ever read the Quran, it's just a bunch of really bad proverbs. Um, genres. We have all different kinds of genres. Why is it important to understand the genre? Turn to Psalm 91, verse 4. So I'm I'm uh, Carl Christian, and I turn and I'm reading through the Psalms, and I come to Psalm 91:4. And the psalmist tells me that he, that God, the Lord, will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. We sang about that this morning. I am so relieved to hear that God has wings and God has literal wings and literal feathers. Does He? Does the Bible tell us that He does? Psalm ninety-one four says what? He will cover you with His feathers. Does He have literal feathers and wings? No. I don't know why you didn't just go straight to Revelation. About we'll get We'll get there. <laughs> Does why do we why do we not say that God literally has feathers and wings when Psalm ninety one four says He does? It's poetry. It's not meant to be interpreted that way. You see, see why now this is a blatantly obvious. Step, but to see why John was so important. Okay, um, let's look at another one. Isaiah twelve ten. Isaiah twelve ten. There is no ten. Yeah, you probably don't want to add to the Bible either. Uh, why did I put twelve ten? Okay, let's let's go to 19 one My Bible is in pencil, so okay. Nineteen one, and I, I this is. See the Lord rides on a swift cloud, and is coming to Egypt. The idols of, of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. What does Isaiah nineteen one say? God is doing. He's riding on a cloud. Is did the Lord literally ride on a cloud? No. Why do we why do we not interpret it that way? Because this is prophetic language. Prophetic language uses symbolism and symbolic words and clouds throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, I would argue even in the New Testament, clouds are a symbol of God's presence. And so, and so we don't read Isaiah 19.1 as if God has, is, you know, riding on a cloud. First of all, the Lord has no corporeal... Essence, the the Lord, He is His Spirit. How how does the Spirit ride on the clouds? Unless you want to argue Trinity at this point, but even that's going—you are going to be hard pressed. Jesus riding on clouds. We we see in Acts one. Clouds. So, nineteen one. We don't we don't believe Jesus, the Lord, literally rides on clouds because this is prophetic language. Um. Let's go to Revelation. Blake uh, got me going on Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. And you could pick a lot in Revelation. Revelation 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now, was there a literal dragon? Now, I'm not talking about his vision. I'm not talking about what he literally saw in his vision. But what he was... Was he seeing a literal dragon on a literal sea? I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten horns... Ten crowns on its horns, and on each had a blasphemous name. Are these literal? Are these literal realities? No. This is this is what we call apocalyptic literature. This is genres apocalyptic, and it is very similar to prophetic. It's like prophetic literature on steroids. Um, the, the, these are usually apocalyptic uses uh, uh, just hyperbolic symbolism to teach literal truths. This is not mythology. He's literally teaching a literal truth, but we have to understand the genre in order to know how to correctly handle it. So we need to identify the genre. Number three, we need to establish the context. If you would go back to Second Timothy, we need to establish context. And what do we mean by context? What, what, is, what is context? Uh, oh. how, how what be is being said fits it fits with what i 've just said fits with what i 'm about to say most of us unless we 're remember Miss South Carolina remember that uh, when, when the English la- language took a battering um, if you've not heard that clip we, we don 't speak like that we don 't we, we don't speak. In in completely disjointed, unrelated things. We don't say, baseball, hot dog, tar, car, such as, therefore, uh, chair. We... we we, we typically speak some better than others in some kind of train of argument, some kind of logical thought. And the Bible is no different. We, we need to make sure that we, we interpret the Bible in the train of thought of the author. What has gone before, what has gone after. And this is what we call the literary context. The literary context is, if, if you were to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, you'd want to study, really, chap- verses 1 through 14, and 16, through the, probably through the end of the chapter. Although even chapters aren't necessarily the dividing lines, so you want to look at the, the, the literary context. What has he just said? What is he about to say? What does he say after what I'm studying? So you know that what his train of thought is. So we, we look at literary context. We also look at historical context. What's historical context? Yeah. yeah. Author, recipient, date, what else? Events that just took place. The... Uh, maybe historical events. Cool. The, 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 the cult, the, well, we're going to look at culture in a second. Where it was written, what was going on at the time, that's historical. Then we also have who said cultural? Lawrence. Oh, Mitch. I thought it was Lawrence. Mitch, you're a man of integrity. You could have. <laughs> cultural. What, what is a cultural context? Cultural customs, cultural mores. Now, I, I am I'm a, I'm a little different maybe than many when it comes to historical and cultural context. In my notes, I wrote caution. Cultural and historical context are not intended to drive or to determine our interpretation; they are secondary. I'm not saying that they're not important. Don't hear me saying that. But but so often we allow. We we allow historical and cultural context to drive our interpretation. It is only useful... These these contexts are only useful to confirm or to validate solid exegesis. Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 3. And I'm going to actually use the E word right now. I'm going to give you a brief evolution. Uh, uh, of my interpretation of Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, Laodicea, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. When I was a youth pastor, man, I preached this hard. I preached this one hard. See, hot means you're really on fire for the Lord. And I had some really cool flannel graphs. It was hot. Hot was you're on fire for the Lord. Hot. Cold was you're just, you just don't want anything to do with God. God is so irrelevant to you. And I hate I just I, and, and lukewarm is you're a Christian, but you're not really committed. And what God was saying is, I would rather have you be a non-Christian, cold, than to be a lukewarm Christian. And I preached it hard. And then I gave invitations for them to rededicate their lives and stop being lukewarm. And then I, you know, I, I... started learning how to maybe correctly handle God's Word a little more. And here, then here's the next phase I went into. I said, well, he's talking about hot and cold. And I looked at the historical context. And Laodicea is apparently is located near Herapolis and Colossae. And Herapolis, they, they piped hot spring water into it. And, and Colossae, they, 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 uh, they piped cold, cool water. But by the time it got to Laodicea, the hot wasn't really hot. The cold wasn't really cold. And it was useless. Well, it, that, by the, that drove my interpretation. Well, I thought, well, that obviously was a typical government project then. If they built a an aqueduct, to hot, and, it, and by the time it got there, it wasn't hot anymore, and the cold wasn't, well, obviously this was a government project, right? And, and and so the interpretation was, you know, this was a church that they really weren't doing anything good. They weren't doing anything really bad, but they weren't doing anything really good. They were just kind of good for nothing. You know, the old saying is, I get paid for being good, you're good for nothing. And then I started becoming more and more convinced that I think God gave us his word that we can interpret it in, without having a manners and customs of the Bible book. And without having a Bible dictionary, and these are, these are gifts to the church, and I'm not saying don't use them, but I'm just saying I want to encourage you that you can enter- accurately handle God's Word just between you and God's Bible. The text gives us the definition of what he's talking about. The literary context tells us what he's talking about. Go back to chapter th- uh, Revelation chapter 3. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The literary context tells us what he means by hot and cold and by lukewarm. What, in terms of literary context, does lukewarm mean? They are completely unaware of their true condition. If you're hot, you know you're hot. If you're cold, you know you're cold. But what they, they said, what's the perfect ambient temperature? I heard something like 72 or something, where you don't really feel hot or cold. See, their problem was, was that they had no clue. They were completely oblivious to their true condition. They were neither hot nor cold. They were absolutely... Compl- they didn't realize... That they were blind, pitiful, poor, naked. You see, the literary context interprets the text for me. I don't need historical... Now, I can maybe examine the historical and cultural context later on and see how that fits with my exegetical interpretation. But I, I, I don't let culture or history drive it. If we if we start doing that, then what do we say to the people? First Timothy two twelve says, "I do not permit a woman to preach or exercise authority over a man." And they make a cultural argument. Say, culturally, this, this Paul was dealing with a cultural moral, that women were, were, were uh, usurping the authority, and culturally, he is addressing those women who are over, overstepping their bounds. We say, "Oh no 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 no! It has nothing to do with culture." This is the Bible. This is, you see, We have to be careful that we don't use historical and cultural context to drive our interpretation. Because number one, our history books are not inerrant. You understand that? History books are not inerrant. Irenaeus is not inerrant. Tacitus is not inerrant. Philip Schaff is not an Aaron. The only thing that's an Aaron is the word of God. So, all that I'm saying is yes, we need to consider historical and cultural background, but it is only to be it is only secondary and is meant to confirm or to validate one's interpretation of the literary interpretation of the text. And if my exegesis is sound and it disagrees with historical and cultural context, so be it number three oh number four study the grammar what's grammar the study of the way language works that, that's just as so simple it's how, how language works and there's many different parts of grammar syntax these are the rules and these are the patterns of the formation of things like sentences and phrases we, we look and next week we're going to actually do some hands on stuff you know conditional clauses therefore for sense if um, verbal verbs you know we talk a lot about verbs um, genitives uh, these are all part of syntax. We, we we need to study those things. Morphology. Morphology is the study of words. Word how words are formed and how we do how do we do a word study? How ought we do a word study? Here's what here's yeah here's what we do. We go to a lexicon. And we look up our word or we go to Strong's and we look up our word and we, we pick which one. But we understand that, that words in the Bible have semantic ranges. English has semantic ranges. For instance, what does green mean? What's that? All yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> what is it? What does green mean? It's a color. It's, mine. it's a color. It's also... What else is it? Money. Money. It means new, fresh, inexperienced. It was green, inexperienced. How do we know what green means? When we go to a lexicon? Context. Context. Yeah. So so the first thing people do when they do a word study is they go look at their lexicon. They go look at their their reference stuff. They know we want to look at how this word is being used in context. So let me tell you how to do a word study. Number one... Don't just jump to a lexicon. What is that? Is that same word used in the same book? So let's say we're studying be diligent. How else does Paul use that, or does he use that in 2 Timothy? So you you look up other usages of that word in the same book. Then you go to the same author. How does Paul use that word in other books? So how does Paul use this word in this case? So same book, same author. Number three, the same testament. How do other authors use that word? And then number four is the other testament. This is a little bit harder because in terms of Greek, you have to look up what the Septuagint is, the Greek translation. But the, 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 the bottom line is there's, there's some work you need to do before you go to your lexicon. And again, guys, in many, many cases, and I would also add this, check multiple translations. Check many translations to see how they interpret that word. So, morphology, word, do the right kind of word study. Don't just run to a lexicon. Um, One more caution. In the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we have what's called hapax legomenon. These are words that occur only once in the New Testament. We have to use extreme caution about building any kind of theology or doctrine based on one word especially a word that's only found once in why should we use extreme caution about building any kind of real hard and fast doctrine on one word and that word is only found once in the New Testament. You can't use knowledge of faith, you can't check context, you can't look how it's used elsewhere. Does it mean that it's a throwaway? Does it mean that, that we are completely lost as to its meaning? No, it just means that it's probably not a wise and prudent thing to to, to, to again to build a strong, a, a really strong and, and, and dogmatic under, uh, definition of that word. And, and preachers and commentators do it all the time. 1 Corinthians 11:15, koine, talking about long hair, only found here. You know, in in uh, 1 Corinthians says long hair is as a shame to a woman. Koine, it, it's only found once. So we, we, we think just through exeg biblical use, he's talking, but we're not really sure. We can't be real dogmatic about what he's saying there about long hair because that, that word is only found once. In other words, in Titus, and this is a, a controversial one, oikurgos. A woman should, when he the older women should teach younger women to oikurgos, oikurgoi, to be busy at home. It, it, this is only found once in the New Testament. And yet, doctrines are built on, based on one word, and that, in fact, not just that one word, but that one word is only found once. In the New Testament I'm not really sure what it means um, Hebrews 6.6 6, That classic passage about falling away Peripipto Is the word Only found once What's the nature of that? Well we can, we can come to some guesses but, it, but we have to be careful that we don't build A huge doctrine on it Because it's only found once Words are important Finally, number five is structure After you've done all that Then we structure What is the author trying to say? What is he saying about what he's saying? Uh, oftentimes, this is very difficult. If if you sat through my Romans six, <laughs> it's hard. And I, you know, I look back on that and I go, man, I, I, man, it was tough. I didn't, I wasn't really. Sometimes I just really struggle. What what what's his line of argument? So I'm not saying this stuff is going to come easy. But this is how we correctly handle. This is some of the things about how to handle the word accurately. The goal in 2 Timothy 2:15 is for you to study the word for and by yourself. In my experience, most people don't really study the Bible. They study what other people have studied the Bible. They spend more time studying and reading what other people studied the Bible about than they do themselves. There is a place for commentaries. There's a place for uh, biblical helps. But when we spend more time reading what someone else studied about the Bible than we did ourselves by ourselves studying the Bible, then we're cheating ourselves. They spend more time and energy reading how someone else studied the Bible than they do for themselves. Commentaries, books are helpful. They should, But they should have a limited role in our personal study of the Bible. And I think that pastors and people have t- convinced you that you can't study it on the same level I do. Because you haven't been trained in seminary. You don't know Greek. You don't have all the fancy uh, uh, extra work, uh, books. And You guys, you can understand and accurately handle the Word of Truth, just you and the Bible and obviously the Holy Spirit. But well, we don't just approach it willy-nilly. We have we have rules and tools and ways that we are to approach this this literature. But you can do it. And, I, and I'm gonna am I'm gonna really encourage you to start spending time for yourself, studying diligent to study God's words using these principles. You can, you can you don't have to run to a commentary. Who has theological biases? How do we how do we even evaluate what they're saying if we haven't even arrived at something ourselves? If you have not correctly handled it first, how will you know if they have correctly handled it? And I understand there's there's an element of trust. I mean, obviously there's an element of trust on Sunday mornings, and there's an element of trust when it comes to commentaries but it, but that trust should be limited Again, the reason I bring this up, and, and we're going to do a little bit more next week, with some, maybe some hands-on thing, is to encourage you guys that you can interpret accurately and correctly handle the Word of Truth without resorting to commentaries, without resorting to historic, extra-biblical uh, materials. Those things are helpful, and those things can help us maybe to make sure we've worked through after we've done our work to work through all. Have we addressed all the issues? Is there something? Was there a blind spot? Was there something I missed? But we cannot spend more time reading how someone else has studied the Bible than more time... us. Tom. I, 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 I think there's one thing and, I, and I, you probably didn't even bring it up because it's probably a little obvious but the starting point has to be that this is my ultimate story. Yes. And I, I know everybody would agree with that but when it gets right down to it it bothers me so much. It's huge. Money, huge. Science becomes on equal footing. Or, or you talk a, bit, a little bit about history. About yep. On equal footing? No, it's not. It's not. Great and, point. And, and I know it's kind of an obvious point, but if this is not my ultimate authority, then at some point I'm willing to say science is equal, and I got I to fudge the Bible to make it match what I think. Or the other way around. Well, I think. And so, well, well, let me. And no, I'm so glad you. Know, because you, we've talked about this. Science doesn't say anything. Well, there was scientists that. scientists right. tell us whatever. Not on equal with that. So we take the Bible at faith value. And then we do all the stuff. Right, right. Uh, great point. If this, let's assume that all of this disagreed with everything out there was telling us. And we were doing our best to understand. It. Right. you go with it. Right. Very little in, in this book is really hard to understand most of it is what? very understandable if, if we approach it correctly what if this disagreed with everything our culture told us <laughs> that's a big what if right? no I think we, we profess that this is our final authority but we rarely sometimes Christians rarely practice that this is our final authority Real quickly, we, I see this so much in scholarship. I, I, I'll read a book. Um, the classic example is I read a book by Dr. Larry Hurtado. He's passed away, um, but I'm not trying to badmouth him. But he wrote a, he wrote a book on second century second century Christianity, and in like the first chapter, he's talking about Second Timothy may have been written by Paul, may not have been written. He's he's doing all this redaction criticism, and I threw it in the trash. Anybody's not going to approach the Bible as our final authority. Uh, uh, and and here, here's the line: uh, a, a, f- a friend of a friend had a, uh, about all these book endorsements and these books. He said, in, in, in Christian evangelical scholarship, we, as, as they relate to a, a the, to the liberal scholars, their approach is: we won't call you heretics if you don't call us stupid. We have this incredible aversion, as Christians, to not be, you know, a bunch of country bumpkins who just fell off the turnip truck. We we want to we want to we're intelligent too, we're scientific too, we're we're we're, we're erudite too. We don't just believe this because obviously he's your Yale man. Is no. Could we be wrong in our in our interpretation? Yeah, maybe it'd be something we'd go back and revisit it. But once we've approached and actually handled the word of truth, not just in profession, but in practice, this is our final authority. This is how we deal with cultural issues through the word of God. Not through our feelings, but through the word of God. Is this really our final authority? You know, Tom brings up a great point. I don't think any Christian would say... Well, I shouldn't say that. Most Christians say, yeah, this is my authority. This is authority. When push comes to sho- shove, oftentimes it's not. Um, and we see this preeminently uh, in, in, uh, in origins and science. But we also see it in moral issues. Homosexuality and LGBTQ. And we want to love our neighbor. Right? We want to love our neighbor. So we need to be uh, accepting of their lifestyle. Well, was that the purpose of of the, the, uh, to love your neighbor? So, um, yes, great point. I should have started with that. Um, No, I, yeah. yeah. Uh, So, here's the deal, guys. You can do it. I'm going to encourage you to do it. Um, You can study the Bible for yourself. And I guarantee you, if you go through these steps, you're going to be really close to what Paul meant. You're going to be really close close to what Peter meant or Matthew meant. You're going to be really close. And then, then if you need and you want to look at some commentaries and things like that, that's great. That's fine. Um, but do it yourself. Spend more time studying it yourself than studying what someone else the time they spent studying it for themselves. And that way we can correctly handle the word of truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And indeed, we don't face our, our world uh, blindly and groping in the dark. And I, I, Lord, I understand there's some issues that we face that's harder to discern what your word would instruct us and how it would instruct us in dealing with it. I understand the complexity of life and that um, that oftentimes it's difficult to know. I also know that, that, that there's obviously disagreements uh, within the church over what the Bible says and what the Bible um, uh, says to us. But Lord, those are, those are exceptions. Uh, that, that if we all approach the Scriptures through the same lens and through these, these very... Um, that, that these are natural and reasonable ways that we are to interpret Scripture, we're all going to be really, really close and Lord, we will experience the joy of discovery. The joy of, of, of us communing with you through your word. And not just through someone else's time in the word, but through our own time with you. We don't want to just proof text and pick out verses here and there. And, and then try to bring some kind of meaning to it. But we want to be diligent to study and to present ourselves to prove to You that we're not ashamed by the way we handle Your Word, but that we handle it correctly and accurately. God, thank You for Your Word, and may we handle this uh, with the care uh, and with the diligence that it requires and it deserves. We thank You and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?